Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Scott Cluthie's Love Cafe. Join us for the best in relationships, family, health, well-being, spirituality, intuitive development, the future, and the past. All present in the Love Cafe. The Love Cafe call-in line, 347-308-8478. That's 347-308-8478. And now, Scott Cluthie's Love Cafe. Well, hello on a Tuesday afternoon. It is Scott Cluthy live in the Love Cafe. And unfortunately, my guest is canceled for today's show, David Thomas Roberts, the author of Unemployed. So I named the show Canceled in honor of David Thomas Roberts and cancellation. But that doesn't mean I don't have great radio for you. Not that I know if you're listening right now or not, but I'm here happy in Houston on a sunny day. It's great to have you out there. We all survived the Super Bowl. I said Super Bowl, didn't I? Well, some of us slept through it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> How could you sleep through Lady Gaga? Yeah, 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 Gaga, Gaga, yeah, yeah. What a superwoman. Anyway, I have some great radio for you, though, because I always, always do. Uh, over, what, 872 and a half shows online, and I've got them for you. Actually, this is a great show. They're one of the greatest creative coaches and creativity coaches in the world. And you probably didn't hear this. Eric Mizell, Making Your Creative Mark. This is one thing we all continue to pursue, I hope, to externalize the great you that's there. And keep going, no matter what the critics say. Well, I couldn't ask for a better show to have it all up and working than my wonderful guest, who's been with me a number of times, and I'll look forward to those in the future. It is Dr. Eric Mizell. Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm great. What if I'm down? Well, if you're down, we'll just use your uh, what, replicant, <laughs> or we'll just we'll go back and play one of our old shows. Nobody will know the difference. Absolutely. Fact, I had well, that happen where I played one of your old shows and it got more listens than the first time we did it. So, <laughs> well, okay, I'm I'm going home then. Oh wait, I am home. <laughs> no, no, not yet. <laughs> no, no, please don't do that to me. His latest book, brand new from uh, New World Library, of course, one of the best publishers around for the kind of work that I like to talk about and be with, and how influence and inspire me, Dr. Eric Mizell, certainly. A coach's coach when it comes to creativity. Making your creative mark. Nine keys to achieving your artistic goals and something of real value tonight. And I do uh, stress, dear listeners, I love to hear from you. If you have questions, comments, there are no silly questions, uh, just silly people like me. Uh, 347-308-8478 is the call-in line. And Eric Mizell is the author of more than 40 works of nonfiction and fiction and truly regarded as one of America's foremost creativity coaches. He trains creative creativity coaches nation nationally, internationally, 
core trainings for Creativity Coaching Association. Mm, my mouth is not working. A print columnist for Professional Artist Magazine, a blogger for Fine Art America and Psychology Today. I can't keep going. Would you spend the hour doing your, your resume, Eric? But Some of those things are familiar to me, yes. <laughs> but uh, this is, uh, in some ways, you could say this is a simulation of some of his key lessons for creative artists of all kinds, everything involved that you and I go through, and I am a creative artist. In fact, I remember the day that my daughter, who's a very creative artist, has her law degree and her fine arts degree. Of course, she was told she couldn't make any money at fine arts by someone, and then she went into law. And But, no, her art is selling, so bleh. So anyway, but she stood in my hallway and said, I just got it, Dad. I just got it. You're an artist. I said, I know. I've been disguised as a salesman. I hate it. <laughs> but that's definitely one of the hats in the shadows that I have to wear. And the lessons in this book, Making Your Creative Mark, are, are reiterations and maybe new, uh, new mm-hmm. illuminations for you on your process, inner and outer, and the steps of truly making your creative mark. Yeah, and, and one of the things you just said, I mean, I'm going to leap in, and that is yes. the the sales part has to come out of the shadows uh, because most of my clients, most creative people, are not that excited about doing the marketing and promoting part of their lives. But if they don't, they're not really adequately advocating for their own work. I try to reframe it from sales to befriending your own work. And for most clients, and I think most artists, they they get that reframe. They they understand that if they're going to pay all of this attention to doing the work, they might as well pay attention to marketing and promoting the work. And not only that, as you know, in, in most professions, sort of being the rule is the way to get along. You know, if you're a civil servant, you don't really want to do more than the person to your right or the person to your left. You'll probably get into trouble for doing too much work. But in, in our world, the rule is not sufficient. Most creative people won't make it, and therefore, as a creative person, you have to prove the exception. You have to do a little more than the next person, maybe get a little luckier than the next person. But you can't do just as much as the next person because that's just not enough. You know, Eric, you just said luckier than the next person, and I know the truth is that I often make my own luck. What about that part of it, making your luck? You know what I'm saying. Well, absolutely. I mean, I try to make a distinction for clients between what they can control, which is very little, and what they can influence, which is a lot. And that's how you make your luck, is you attempt to influence what you can influence. If it means... I was just talking to someone the other day, and we were talking about what the rule is with literary agents, namely that you should never call them. That's, they set up their rules, and they believe that's the rule they want to live by. Never call me, just email me. And she said, well, I didn't know that rule, so I called this agent, and I got this agent, and I essentially got ahead of other writers by violating the rule. Fortunately, I just didn't know the rule because I'm not a rule-violating kind of person. Mm-hmm. But that's the case, is that if there's a certain kind of rule we make our own luck by maybe violating that rule. And, and we make a lot of rules for ourselves about it, don't we? And, and out of our assumption, our beliefs, or what we say is our experience of the way the world works, especially in regard to the world of the artists, we do make our own rules. And, and, and so what about those rules and that examination process of whether those rules are really serving us? Or for me, it's like the rules I was operating in as far as, uh, let's say, my creative or radio work and so on, 
10 or 15 years ago versus the rules of the way the world really is today in regard to that particular kind of media? Yeah, we're, we're, very, we're very tricky creatures, and we're yeah. trying to um, hide from ourselves the fact that we're anxious about this, scared about that, uncertain about this, doubtful about that. So we make up all kinds of rules to shield ourselves from the anxiety we're experiencing. very typical rule that a visual artist will make is, well, I don't have enough work for a show. I, I need 2,700 pieces before I can have a show, or some absurdly large number because they've read somewhere some number like that. Well, that they're, they're buying that rule because by picking so large a number, they're putting off the moment when they have to put their work out there and have it be appraised and criticized and all of that. So we have to double-check the things we claim are our rules to make sure that we're not just fooling ourselves. Uh, you know, I don't... There probably weren't... I don't... What were your guides... You're a brilliant man. I mean, and you've, you've de- developed a whole, almost a branch of psychology. Um, you you truly want and 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 really propel the people that work with you to go deeper. And but what about your guidelines? What are you surprised at who you are now versus 20 years ago, Eric Mizell, then and now, as far as your understanding of the way it really works and and how? That's an interesting number, 20 years. I I think that maybe I am surprised about 20 years, but not 60 years. I I think I'm relatively the same person I was at five. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I was, you know, ready to be reading Dostoevsky and Camus at five, and in fact, you know, did start on them, start on the existential literature in my early teens, even though I claimed I was a physicist type in my teens, I was actually reading existential literature rather than doing calculus. So I think I'm the same person I was then, but then there are all those intervening decades <laughs> where you, I wouldn't say lose your way exactly, but you have to live life. And I had to make many transitions. I started out as a novelist, wasn't making money then, was actually having an interesting life as a ghostwriter and was making money as a ghostwriter, but my own fiction wasn't selling. So I retooled as a psychotherapist. I'm a California-licensed psychotherapist, and I did that. And then I realized that I had no belief in the medical model that underpins psychotherapy. I didn't believe I was diagnosing and treating mental illnesses. I thought I was just dealing with folks with problems. And so I had to retool from that to the coaching. And so, like everybody, I have a long history of a journey, and I think I am quite a bit different from the way I was, I would say, 30 years ago when I started the therapy training because before then I'm not sure I listened to anybody. (laughs) And part of the training, part of therapist training is forcing you to listen (laughs) to the story of the person across from you. And that was a a big personal breakthrough for me to um, acknowledge that other people existed. Well, you know, that's... By the way, dear listeners, uh, I love to listen to you. And the call-in line is 347-308-8478 here on Positively Incorrect. Your host, Scott Cluthy, on Blog Talk Live on this Thursday night. Questions or comments for Dr. Eric Mizell, we'd love to hear from you. His new book, Making Your Creative Mark, from New World Library, the website that's easy for me because it's his name is Eric Mizell. That's M-A-I-S-E-L, ericmizell.com. Check it out for yourself. There's such a world there. I was thinking about, you know, that the artistic life, especially when you start talking about writers, 
you start talking about people that work with canvas or sculpture, whatever it is, can oftentimes be a very isolated uh, situation. And it can also be a kind of persona we drop over ourselves where we are that, you know, we kind of create that isolation on purpose. And then can that also then lead to isolated thoughts? And as you said, maybe not listening to the people around us. Absolutely. I, I like to rhyme, create, and relate. And I tell my clients that creating may be your primary meaning container, your primary meaning opportunity, but you really had better relate also because we know historically that creative people who have maybe been terrific producers of art but not so good at relating feel very cold. They have very cold lives. They don't, they're not enjoying life. Many of them commit suicide. Many of them become alcoholic. Part of those problems have to do with their inability or unwillingness, whichever it is, to relate. And so I absolutely um, demand or pester <laughs> clients about the necessity of um, taking relating seriously and including it in their menu of meaning opportunities. And sometimes most clients buy that. They, they understand that they, they, in a way they haven't had permission to relate because they thought they were supposed to live in solitude, live in isolation, live on the margins, be a kind of outsider, yes. that that was the true place to be, and that to somehow move from the outside to the, so to speak, center where other human beings were was somehow inauthentic. But once we get that on the table, that that's not inauthentic, then they know that's what they want. And so we may spend a whole session, I've done this more times than I can count, spend a whole session on what's the best dating service, <laughs> or that that kind of session, yes. because the relating is that important. And that may be a hole in them that they maybe thought fed their art, but they're finding out it's emptied their soul. Huh? Yeah, and and that they're not making enough meaning in their life. Um, most creative ah. people think that if they get to their creative work and if they're successful, that will amount to sufficient meaning, and that's typically not true. And even just as a sort of temporal and mechanical matter, many artists can't really work for more than two or three or four hours. They don't, you know, our, we, our brains get tired, and that's a long time to be creating. Well, that leaves you with 20 hours of a day, and if you don't have a clue as to how to spend those other 20 hours, you're not going to have a good life. Tennessee Williams said a line I like, and that is, after I stop writing, the rest of the day is posthumous. Well, you don't want that. <laughs> you don't want to feel like when you stop doing your creative work, you have to be dead for 20 hours until your brain cells are back so you can create again. You want to have what I sometimes call a parallel life to the creative life, another life that's also working. Maybe even coming to understand that your whole life can be creative. Uh, the nine keys that Eric Mizell covers in Making Your Creative Mark, the mind key, the confidence key, the passion key, the freedom key, stress, empathy, relationship, identity, societal, and we'll touch on those things. Uh, Eric, I wanted to talk, because you've been mentioning, it's kind of interesting, you're talking about <clears throat> how the new technology, how the world has changed, is also changing the way you do your work, and we want to talk about that. But are you seeing, are the issues... Uh, different, but it, or is it just the package that younger artists are coming to you with? Are they already all the same? It's like you know, no one in the world's ever had a stress over whether they get the work out in time. You know that kind of thing. Are they changing? 
I think they're essentially the same. Um, if I were to pinpoint some things that are different, I think that there are more, and this is not a technical term, this is metaphoric, I think there are more distraction addictions than before. I think people are really caught up against their will in checking their email and being on Facebook and tweeting, and not just that, but just all the micro-information of the universe is affecting people. And what's sadly paradoxical or part of the picture is that they're also being told when they're told how to live their life as an artist that they're supposed to master these things. They're supposed to be tweeting and Facebooking and doing all this as part of their marketing and promoting efforts. So in a way, they can't get away from it because they're supposed to be doing it to enhance their careers. So I think that the that the fracturedness and rushingness of life is new and different, and it's it's a further impediment. So when I counsel clients to create a morning creativity practice, which I think is a really important step in uh, in adding routine and ritual and scheduling to one's life. I know that they really can't get to their morning creativity practice until they check email. It's like it's almost physically impossible not to check email because, you know, you might have won the Nobel Prize and the email might be there or there might be some fire you have to put out or something. So I've begun in the beginning, I would say to people, can't you actually skip checking email for a bit until you get your creating done? Now I don't say that. Now I say, can you scan your email really fast? <laughs> just to see if you've won the Nobel Prize and then get on with your creating. Because I think the the allure, if that's it, or the addictive qualities of email and all of that stuff is so great that yeah. most people kind of really can't skip it. It's kind of been, it's it's gotten built into our DNA in this culture at least, you know, but at least you can skip the spam file, right? Well, I, you know, <laughs> I think I think it's in a way the place of excitement. I, I think maybe some people are checking it out of worry to see if there's some fire they have to put out. But I think a lot of people are checking it out of a kind of incipient, maybe I've won the lottery, a real lottery, not the scam, not the Nigerian lottery, but an actual lottery. So I think people are putting their sort of excitement bundle there. And so it makes sense that if that's one of the more exciting places in your life to check email, you're going to do it, uh, you know, addictively and uh, <laughs> all the time. And it can become very obsessive, can it? Mm -hmm. Waiting for that email back from the publisher. Yeah, and that's another place where all artists have to learn to keep going while they're waiting. And that's not so. It's not so easy in the beginning to understand that that's your job. You know, you typically an art, a young artist will send out work, whatever the work, whatever the medium is, whatever the work is. You know, send out their book proposal to some one literary agent that they have their heart set on. Now, I know and you know that agent is either going to delete the email without responding to it at all, or if she responds, it might be two months from now. If you, the artist, you, the writer, don't realize this, you can be sitting there for two months making up all kinds of scenarios about what's going on in this mysterious agent's world. You know, is she now reading the proposal? Is she? Am I going to get? Am I going to get a phone call in the next two minutes? That's a very difficult place to be and a very hard way to spend time in that waiting mode. So I, I really try to convince clients that when they should be sent, it is important that they send things out, but it's important that they resume their work as quick as is humanly possible 
while they're waiting on results. Yeah, good point. Dr. Eric Mizell, my guest this evening here on Positively Incorrect with your host, Scott Cluthy, live on this Thursday evening. You were talking, uh, I was thinking about this, Eric. You are talking about how you're doing a, a major presentation. I think it's the South America later this year. I did that already to uh, Bogota, Colombia, virtually. How was that? Yes. Um, weird. It was weird and it was weird and difficult. Um, really. The yeah. the creating the creating of the uh, keynote presentation, which I did at home, uh, that worked fine. But then there was a live question and answer period with a Spanish translator, and I actually understood none of his translations. Really? He was using $7 words out of a dictionary, and I didn't know what the words meant. I'd never heard... They, they were English words. Really? But, I, but I'd, never, I'd never heard them before. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so, you know, I'm pretty practiced at this. This is another thing where, you know, the young artist can freak out and have no idea... And, just, and is worried that this is exactly the sort of thing that may come up in life. For me, I just, answer, I just made up a question in my head to answer and answered it. Because I had to, do, <laughs> I had to do, I had to do something. <laughs> Let me talk about stress. <laughs> I'm stressed right now. <laughs> I know. I actually, I actually uh, was stressed in the moment, and I don't usually get yeah. stressed, you know, in interviews or what have you, because I was seriously having no clue what the questions were. It, it was wow. surreal. <laughs> that, that's scary. <laughs> That is scary. <laughs> it's like me doing an interview and people are talking and they can't hear me. And that happened last week. And she's going, well, I guess God, I'll just keep talking about what I do. <laughs> oh, my God, I feel like an idiot. Well, you know, but it, it's interesting. And I think creative people sort of understand this but don't exactly understand it. And that is if they get successful or as they get more and more successful, then they're going to be doing things which up the anxiety ante. It's just natural that, you know, if you've never done radio interviews and they start, well, in the beginning, that's got to be anxiety-producing. And then there's TV, and then there are the book signings or the gallery openings or big performances. I have a new client who's um, not yet a big Mexican pop star, but sort of at the, the level just below right. big Mexican pop star, and she was an opening act for a big Mexican pop star. And so she was performing for the first time in, in, in a stadium that holds, in Mexico City, that holds 10,000 people. Well, if you're moving from, you know, a cafe with eight people to, <laughs> to a stadium with 10,000 people, wow, surprise, you might feel some anxiety. And we're demanding of ourselves that we move up like that. We're trying to move up some ladder. And at the same time, we don't want the attendant anxiety that comes with each step on that ladder. So it's it's a complicated situation where you need to realize and embrace the fact that this anxiety is coming, that you've asked for it, essentially. You're begging for it. Yes, please, give me the 10,000 people. And now that you've got them, you've got to deal with it. Yeah, and that's an example, as you uh, uh, write about so eloquently in the book, in the stress key, there are good, what we call label, good stress, bad stress, but it's all stress. In that case... This is a great thing. She's getting 10,000 people who may run out to iTunes or wherever it is people download music from, because I play records, and buy her record. I mean, it's an incredible opportunity. At the same time, she was probably going totally bananas. That's right, and you have to be careful that you don't go totally bananas. It's okay to go one banana, two banana, <laughs> but totally bananas, you know, people do that. They 
rush off the stage. I know um, one um, oboist who had a Carnegie Hall gig and forgot her repertoire completely and had to leave the stage, and that's bad, but the next thing is worse, and that is she left the oboe forever. No. She couldn't. She could not face the possibility of doing of having that happen ever again. So, on the one hand, there's the reality of catastrophes like that. On the other hand, there's recovering from them. We have to recover from these catastrophes. You know, I know, successful people are the, are the people who forget the huge catastrophe they had yesterday. Yeah. You know, they invented something that didn't work. They don't care. They're already on to something that might work. You know, yeah. Edison doesn't care if, you know, 14,000 filaments don't work. He's, he wants to get to the one that does work. Mm. He has yeah. that intention, that, that overriding, abiding intention to get his work done. So one hopes that any, you know, any creative person can remember that if you have a catastrophe, and, and one or two are coming, if you have a catastrophe, recover. Yeah, I've many times spent uh, literally hours, much longer than doing this show, reading a book, absorbing it, getting ready for it, and then the guest isn't there. Mm -hmm. Or there's a technical failure. The feeling is sort of like staring into the abyss, kind of like, what has my life been about today? Exactly. It's it's amazing to what an an existentially dark place we can go over a guest not being there. Crazy. It is crazy. But getting excited about the next guest, that's the pick it up. That's the move forward. That's booking the next guest the next day and getting exciting, something new. Rescheduling and it's also, it's also a philosophical bent, I think, of right. realizing that it's the Buddhist non-attachment. It's understanding that for all of our ambitions and dreams, all of which are good, we nevertheless must not attach to outcomes. We can't attach to outcomes because they, they are not in our control. There are things we can influence but we can't control outcomes. You can't, you can't make a guest show up. You don't even know where they are to drag them to the phone. <laughs> no. They're in some other universe. You can't make certain things happen. And when we realize that we can't make certain things happen, then we, we really should understand that we'd better not attach to outcomes. And also take on the responsibility for other people's actions or lack thereof. You know, that it says something about you that you fulfill your part of what you see as the as the agreement, right? The transaction. Yeah, there's there's that's and a, they that's, don't. A, that's a yes but and the but is in the both the empathy key and the relationship key, I talk about the necessity of even if you don't want to be compassionate towards other people, which, you know, is nice, be nice if one were, but at least you want to understand where they're coming from. You want to be able to get into their shoes. I think that's the that's the core meaning of empathy. It's not compassion, but understanding where they're coming from. So if you know you're working with somebody who's difficult, who maybe is unlikely to show up metaphorically, then it is your job to pester them three times to remind them to show up. Or It's your job to do what you can to make the people around you um, function at their best. So yes, you can't control them, but that's different from throwing up your hands and saying, there's no way I can help myself with respect to other people. We can help ourselves with respect to marketplace players, audience members, what have you. We can help ourselves by, by just doing natural things and being savvy about where, where influence can be exerted. Yeah, I know often is the case 
where uh, I do make that call to make sure. And they say, well, I was going to call you. I said, yes, I know you're going to call me if you wish. Or I can call you and bring you into the show, and I'm happy to do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. I was going out for dinner. I thought it was an hour from now. You know, that kind of conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, you're showing up tomorrow, <laughs> not today. What? <laughs> I had a funny, this is not exactly on point, but I had a funny um, incident you know, maybe two months ago where I got an email from somebody I know who was coming to town, a, a client of mine who had written a book, and she was coming to town to talk about her book. And she said, well, you know, March 3rd, let's get together and what have you. So February 3rd, she shows up. I mean, she She had missed the mark by a month. In 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 announcing when she was showing up, so we, my wife and I, threw together. <laughs> we we know how to open a you know bottle of wine, and we threw together a little food a month early. But it it's just funny how careless people can be in their in their dealings in the world, and because people can be that careless, we just have to stay on our toes. And I think that is a part. Maybe a, a side venue of the mind key about minding your minds. Uh, also about, and, and for me, it's not getting caught up in the truly tri- uh, trivial, but re- what's the important mark? You know, what's the important mark, Scott, is making sure that guest knows they're on, making sure you have their phone number, making sure you've done some due diligence on what you're going to be talking about, you know, making sure that you're in the right frame of mind. Not, you know, oh, my God, I didn't read this book or, you know, blah, 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 I forgot. No. It's what's really key to making it work. And that applies to everything in life. It does. And, you know, when you were saying that, a story comes to mind. Like, you know, neither one of us should really be able to remember all the minor points in these nine keys. I mean, who who should be able to remember these things? Well, I don't. And I, I can't either. I mean, I wrote the book whatever a year ago, and why should I remember 163 details? And yet, you know, the world expects you, in some sense, to remember those things. But I don't want I don't want to hold on to the necessity of needing to remember things like that because then I don't have space to think my current important thoughts. So here's the story. So many years ago, I did a book called Sleep Thinking. And my publicist uh, called me up one day and said, you can, you can be on the show to tell the truth. Do you remember that show, To Tell the Truth? Tell the Truth, yeah. To yeah. Tell the truth. And there was, a, there was a remake. There was an old show from a long time ago called To Tell the Truth. And then That's there was the a remake. That's <laughs> And the remake had, um, who was that fellow from Designing Women? Do you, um, God, I don't know. I don't watch TV. Oh, too bad. Okay, at any rate, so I'm called down to Los Angeles to a TV studio to appear in my pajamas as a, as a sleep thinker on this TV show. And we're all and there are three of us. There are three Eric's in the hall. There are three of everybody in the hall. Three three Heidi's and three Bambies and what have you. All of us are taping on that day. So there are three Eric's and the producer says to me, "This sleep thinking book had like a 26." step program in it or something and he said to me okay so what's step three of your program and as the real eric i'm supposed to tell the truth and so i tell the truth i have no idea what step three of this 28 step program is i have no idea and he looks at me and he thinks about it and he thinks about it and he says okay i guess that could be the truth <laughs> that could be it's my and, and in fact oh meshach taylor was the actor's name and in fact on the show Meshach Taylor asked me that question, not step three, but he said, what's step eight of your program? 
And I said, I don't know. And ultimately, he voted for me as the real Eric because he said, if I had a 28-step program, I wouldn't know what step eight was either. So I believed you. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. My guest is Dr. Eric Mizell. His latest book, Making Your Creative Mark, Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals from New World Library. One of the things I love about the true veterans like Eric Mizell is when I talk to them, the time just flies, and we're already halfway through the show. Here on Positively Incorrect with your host, Scott Cluthy, on Blog Talk Radio, uh, we are live. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Mizell, the call in line, 347-308-8478. We're just over now uh, 200 and we're getting 285,000 listeners out there uh, cumulative on the show. That's great. Had 10 my first month, so <laughs> it's great. Uh, and and we'd love to hear from you. But in the meantime, uh, Eric, the uh, favorite website, ericmizel.com, tell folks about what's on that site before we go to our break. Well, there's information about the workshops I lead. I lead workshops at all the big workshop centers around the country, Esalen and Omega and Kripalu and Hollyhock in Canada. I do writing workshops. Um, I'm a tiny bit jet lagged because I just came back from a week-long writing workshop in Rome. You're entitled. We spent a few weeks in Rome, and it was beautiful. So I do workshops around the world. I train creativity coaches um, in in conjunction with the Creativity Coaching Association. And I do a lot of interesting things. Um, I'm doing a new thing. Uh, do you know what a MOOC is, M-O-O-C? Can't say I do. It's a massive open online class, and universities like Stanford and Harvard and MIT run them. So they have top professors do these classes for free. Um, And, for instance, one Stanford class had 240,000 students. Wow. Yeah, so so it's it's sort of outreach from these universities into the larger world community. So I'm, I'm, this language is going to sound completely funny to you, but I'm hosting a channel on a MOOC about the... (laughs) About the uh, DSM-5, and I think you know what that is. That's the new... Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, that mental health providers use to diagnose and, and treat mental illnesses. Well, there's a new version of it coming yes, out in, in, right. in 2000, this year perhaps, although it may be delayed because there's so much controversy. But this MOOC is investigating the changes in the DSM, and, and it's, it's to be a place where people can have a conversation about whether these changes are smart. And so I'm hosting a channel on that called Rethinking Mental Health, which is an, an offshoot of the column I do in Psychology Today called uh, Rethinking Psychology. Well, I'd have to say, knowing who you are, that's almost like you're getting your dessert before dinner because you <laughs> love that stuff. And you're I do love that stuff, and I love that stuff because it because the current models are so outrageously bad. Yeah that there need to be some voices in the wilderness explaining the badness of the current models. So it's, it's, it's mission work for me. Um, as you know, um, these mental disorder labels are uh, proliferating around the globe. We're having epidemics of everything, but they're labeling epi- epidemics. They're not real things. Right. And so I'm trying to do my part in helping explain what's actually going on. You're now a mookster. I'm a mookster. <laughs> yeah. His Highness Mookster, Eric Mizell. Eric well, I was, I was never going to make it as a hipster, so I'm glad I can be something. Well, it's the new, it's the, it's the new century now. You're a mookster, so you're very on top of the curve. <laughs> so, yeah, bully for you. 
Anyway, we'll take a break, remind you about the great companies that sponsor this, including Phaseway Travel, my lovely wife, Faye, and her American Express Travel Agency. Do check it out. Give her a call. She's an affiliate and can take you around the world in the right way. So hang on, Eric. We'll be back in about two minutes, okay? You bet. Positively incorrect to you. You're listening to Scott Cluthy's Positively Incorrect Radio. Join the newsletter at scottcluthy.com and on Facebook at Scott Cluthy's Positively Incorrect TV and Radio. Want to talk to tonight's guest? Call in at 347-308-8478. We'll be right back. Scott Cluthy's Positively Incorrect Radio is excited to share our new sponsor with you, Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have well over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our URL, which is audibletrial.com forward slash Scott's Books, you get one free audiobook and one month free trial of the service. Great books like Dreamweaver by Gary Wright, Knock'em Dead Social Networking by Martin Yate, or any of the best-selling books by the best-selling authors I have on the show all the time. So that's right. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Scott's Books and support Positively Incorrect Radio and support yourself with the greatest books in the universe. Remember, that's a free book and a free one-month trial at audibletrial.com forward slash scottsbooks. Soulgrowth.org is the online portal for all spiritual paths. It is packed with great wisdom and many tools to inspire all of us on our spiritual journeys, like the Zen Kitchen and One Minute Epiphanies, And you can help others while helping yourself at no cost as a soul growth mentor. Also, go now to MuseList.org so you can receive the Soul Growth Muse letter and run your own free classified ads for the spiritually aware. Hello, your host Scott Cluthy for Positively Incorrect. Hope you're enjoying the show tonight. Have you ever thought about hosting your own radio show? Well, make me your broadcast coach. I'll share 25 years of knowledge and insight, help you create your show, the sound, the theme, every aspect of your program, and help you get launched here on Blog Talk Radio or some other network of your choice. Go to scottcluthy.com and check the Your Broadcast Coach tab and start your professional broadcasting career today. This is Positively Incorrect Radio with your host, Scott Cluthy. Call in for tonight's guest at 347-308-8478 and join the newsletter at scottcluthy.com. And look for Scott Cluthy's Positively Incorrect TV and radio on Facebook. Now back to Positively Incorrect with Scott Cluthy. Hello, your host Scott Cluthy for Positively Incorrect. Hope you're enjoying the show tonight. Have you ever thought about hosting your own radio show? Well, make me your broadcast coach. I'll share 25 years of knowledge and insight, help you create your show, the sound, the theme, every aspect of your program, and help you get launched here on Blog Talk Radio or some other network of your choice. Give me a call at 713-665-3969 or go to scottcluthy.com 
and check the Your Broadcast Coach tab and start your professional broadcasting career today. You're listening to Positively Incorrect with your host Scott Cluthy on Blog Talk Radio. The call-in line is 347-308-8478. And now back to Scott Cluthy and Positively Incorrect. Thursday evening across America, around the world, on Blog Talk Radio. Your host, Scott Cluthy, with Positively Incorrect. Great to have you out there. And do join me on Twitter. It's JSC Media on Twitter. And the, the website, scottcluthy.com. Also, I have a lot of comedy videos now. Seymour Foxhole, my alternate persona from deep within my shadow bowels. <laughs> and the Black Hole Report. Got 14 of those up now on Funny or Die, yeah, Will Ferrell's website. You can check that out. And, uh, and also the shows I do uh, up at Houston'sVoice.com. And uh, as we move into the video age, along with the, well, really now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows here on Blog Talk Radio, you're going to find some great stuff in the archives. Do check it out for yourself, okay? My guest is Eric Mizell. Dr. Mizell's new book is Making Your Creative Mark, Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals. Eric, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Absolutely. You know, we talked a little about stress and about, uh, you know, about a little about the mind chatter. But when I think about some of these other issues, you mentioned it uh, briefly and people waiting for editors to call back or when's the email coming and so on. I think that probably, uh, uh, as I was talking earlier about the solitary artist, not so much even someone in a band or or a musician working in an orchestra, or people who are interacting with others daily, but those who are a little more sequestered in some way, the relationship key is and can be very difficult because we create a persona of ourselves as artiste, and now we do have to go out and be marketer, and we don't always have the the uh, the societal grease, if you will. To, to do these things in a way where we create the right impression of ourselves. And, and so there's a right way and a wrong way, and I'm not saying set in rules, but what part does who we really are, Eric, I mean who we really are, not some persona, uh, play in how we approach these things versus putting on or slapping on the happy face? Because you do talk about that, how rising up to be a lot friendlier than you really feel when it's those critical times. How do we get to that point? Well, I think it's a it's a third eye kind of thing. It's being aware of the situation and what we want from ourselves and what how we're actually going to make ourselves proud. I don't think it makes ourselves proud if we if it's on our nature to act out to act out in a marketplace situation and blow an opportunity. You know, we may have one second of feeling, wow, I, I really stood up there or something. But then after that one second of whatever that feeling is, we realize we've disappointed ourselves and ruined some opportunities. So I think awareness is the key here. And then practice. Uh, it, You know that m- m- the number one phobia worldwide is public speaking. Yeah. More than you know, flying or rats or snakes or anything is public speaking. So it, it's clear that people are frightened by even speaking for a minute in a business meeting. So there's a whole anxiety management piece where creative people need to 
understand and honor that they're probably going to feel anxious when they try to do this new work of meeting the marketplace better. So they'll need some anxiety management tools, and then they need to practice. I have all clients write out the, usually 10 is the number I choose, the the 10 most obvious questions they're going to be asked about their work. You know, how long is it? What's it about? What have you written before? You know, we could name the 10 obvious questions that an agent or an editor might ask you. They're not mystery questions, but they require thinking through. Usually the first answer that we give to such questions is not our best answer. Most people will stumble and mumble and fumble through, you know, what's your book about? And it's only by really writing out a good answer to that question and rehearsing it that we feel confident enough to, you know, go into a writer's conference and walk up to a literary agent and shake her hand and say, I've got this book about this. We're not going to do that work of walking up to that agent until we feel confident that we can say what our book's about. And, and that's work we need to do out of sight, in front of a mirror, with ourselves, so that we really understand how to represent ourselves. My guest, Dr. Eric Mazel. The call in line, 347-308-8478. I see one of my long-term listeners there, Deanna, on the line. I don't know if she has a question for Dr. Mazel or not, but we'll find out in a minute. But, um, you know, that, um, that the analogy is, uh, for me, on, the, on what you just shared, Eric, is that a uh, very good friend of mine now, he's the uh, CEO of Coach U, an incredibly uh, successful professional coach training school. But at the time, Sandy Vilas was just, well, he wasn't just, he was <clears throat> really professionally focused on networking here in Houston. And he and his uh, one of his uh, ex-wives <laughs> uh, did incredible networking work. And one of the things, one of the skills they taught was the 30-second introduction. Yep. And it wasn't about, I'm a bricklayer and I lay straight bricks. It was more about the beingness of it. It was about the possibility of it to really um, to put something out there and also to draw people in in an intriguing manner. Do you ever give that kind of skill set where you actually make a statement that adds a layer of intrigue or mystery? It's sort of like, tell me more, because that's what he was looking for for you is to tell me more. Yeah, I don't know about intrigue or mystery, but I, I do demand that um, these presentations be powerful. I'm not, I think maybe each presentation is powerful in its own way. Um, I've done lots of work at writers' conferences, the kind of two-chair work where I'll, I'll role-play with a volunteer from the audience uh, in front of you know the rest of the audience and help that person move from their first inarticulate representation of their novel to mm-hmm. something where the the whole the whole room of 300 or 400 writers gets the difference between our first fumbled attempts at something and what in really no time becomes a relatively polished presentation so it's it's that polish it's that power it, for me to say it simply we need to be, we need to be responding in ways that work and if we need you know, to practice it with an art buddy, if we need to do it in a mirror, however we need to do it, we want to get to that place where our presentations work. That makes a huge difference in our life. In fact, as a creative person, I think it makes the following kind of difference also. It actually helps you complete your work because a lot of people leave their work incomplete because they're already pre-worried about presenting the work. They're anxious about presenting the work. 
And so to avoid that anxiety of presenting the work, they make sure they never have to present it by keeping it incomplete. So a very horrible dynamic and loop goes on there where people start projects, never complete them, disappoint themselves, feel unfulfilled, and all of that may be about their reluctance to present finished products in the world. Mm. Yeah, very powerful thought there. Uh, you know, and I I do broadcast coaching work with people, and sometimes it's people wanting to be on media. Other times it's people who, you know, want to represent themselves into a new media, whatever it might be, maybe an author who, or whatever it might be. And so, uh, so I know the power of of a coaching, of being present for someone as their advocate, um, in in that regard, versus just talking to somebody about it. And so, and and you mm-hmm. have uh, quite a a stable now of creativity coaches, and have been a, a professional coach for many years. What about the advice of of getting off the schneid and getting support from a professional coach, regardless of the area of artistic expression you're working in? Well, you know, obviously, I think it's a great idea. Um, Coaches provide two things, uh, or maybe many things, but two things come to mind, and that is they provide support. And most creative people don't really have a lot of supportive people in their lives, and often they have quite unsupportive people in their lives. So, yes, it's paid support, but it's nevertheless support, and they get accountability. And an awful lot of people want that accountability. They understand that they're having trouble to use the D word, having trouble with discipline, and that if they check in via email with their coach regularly, that helps them. Just to know that 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 their coach is waiting for this weekly email helps them get their work done. So I think there's a I think there's an awful lot of positives to the coaching relationship. For me, those are the two big ones: support and accountability. Very good. As I mentioned, uh, uh, the call in line three four seven three zero eight eight four seven eight here to positively incorrect live on this Thursday evening. Your host Scott Cluthy, my guest Dr. Eric Mizell, his new book "Making Your Creative Mark" from New World Library, just out in mid-April. So it's great to have him on here. And uh, I, I believe that's Deanna. I don't know if she has a question or comment, and she often listens on the phone while she's walking or whatever, so let's find out together because uh, Deanna's always great uh, with her insights. Hello, Deanna. Good evening, Scott. Hello, Dr. Eric. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Uh, always learning to improve, always learning. I wonder if you have, like, a quick confidence build-up injection <laughs> Why don't you should use that word? <laughs> no, we're 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 against drugs. <laughs> uh, this would be just uh, oxytocin. But how do you bring it up when you are lacking confidence? Well, you know there are many kinds of responses to that. I'm going to go in the anxiety reduction place because the the flip side of being confident is feeling too anxious, and most people even though they understand that it may be anxiety that's keeping them from feeling confident, nevertheless don't really own or master one or two anxiety management skills. And there are lots of skills available, lots of tools, tactics, strategies available, simple ones like deep breathing, certain kind of cognitive work, relaxation work, a whole category of anxiety management tools called discharge techniques. To make this long story short, most people 
are prevented from feeling confident because they're manifesting anxiety. And therefore, people need anxiety management tools that work for them. They, they need to do something different from reading a book about anxiety management. They need to actually practice some tools. So that would be way more beneficial than um, some injection would be actually acquiring an anxiety management tool that works for you. Thank you. Thank you. Always You're welcome. All right, Deanna. Thank, thank you for you, your great question, okay? I'll keep on listening. Now, I'll put you back on hold. It's great to have you thank out you. there. Uh, any questions or comments from the audience, feel free to call in 347-308-8478. Let's talk about passion. Passion, people throw that word around a lot. You've got to have passion. You really go into it in Chapter 3, the passion key. Uh, talk about what passion means to you, Eric, and also that we grow our own passion. Yeah, there's there's a Pavarotti quote that I like, and that's people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. And there is a big difference. I think if we try to white-knuckle life and be disciplined about, about our creative work, typically that doesn't work because it isn't discipline that's motivating us I do think that it's love that fuels the artist's journey. Maybe it's love of creating something excellent or or love of humanity or love of something. And when that uh, flame goes out, when we are no longer enthusiastic about our work, interested in our work, curious about these are all cognates of, of passion. If we're not curious about our work, interested in our work, or what have you, it's really hard to do the work. And so we need to have our tactics for rekindling passion. And in the book I go over many of them, but one of the ones that strikes me as particularly important is to remember what you loved when you were a kid. I think those loves of ours at five, six, seven, eight, love of reading, love of going into that darkened theater, love of science, whatever it is we loved then, really were our purest and maybe still to this day most powerful loves. And so, as in a certain sense, as simple-minded as it seems, when you've lost passion for your creative work, a tactic is just to write out a little list of the things you loved when you were seven. And you might discover, you might reconnect with that um, really fiery passion that, that kids have, that, that deep thing that happens between a youngster and a book or a youngster and a film. We want that again today, and if we don't have it, it's unlikely we're going to get our work done. Hmm. Very good. Uh, you know, you've dealt with thousands of artists and, and maybe maybe hundreds of thousands with the people you talk to in groups and so on, I don't know. But um, what are the what are the, uh, the dilemmas, the problems, the situations we create for ourselves in our artistic expression and, and creation and all aspects. What are some of the main things, Eric, that you see that people create that are false fronts? You know what I'm saying? False walls they can't get over. That it, well, yeah. You know, get those I, out I of the way. It's stuff that actually might be a problem. Yeah. I, I, might, I might shift that a little bit to, okay. to the following point, which is, the biggest problem, and that's why the mind key is first, the, the biggest problem that creative people are confronted by 
are the ways that they're trapped by true thoughts. Everyone seems to think that because a thought is true, they should countenance it. And we get held hostage to true thoughts. So what do I mean? So let's say you have the thought, wow, there are a lot of writers out there. That's a true thought, but it's almost certainly not a thought that serves you. So I try to convince clients to make the movement from thinking true thoughts, certainly moving from thinking false thoughts, but also the movement from thinking true thoughts to make to thinking thoughts that serve them. And that be, that's often an eye-opener for a client to realize that they don't have to hold on to a thought just because it's true. Because in a, in a typical creative person's daily life, they're thinking many, many thoughts that are true that are not useful. And they might be thoughts like, uh, as I say, there's so many writers out there that's so competitive. You know, if, if, even if I were to publish a book, then I have to do all of this promoting, blah, blah, blah. And that, those may all be true thoughts, but they're also going to interfere with your ability to write the book in front of you. So to, to say this all in, in a little package, we need to be noticing what we're saying to ourselves, which is an act of courage because we're tricky creatures and we often don't want to know what we're saying to ourselves. So step one of this little process is to hear what we're saying to ourselves. Step two is to dispute those thoughts that don't serve us, to say no. No, that may be a true thought, but it doesn't serve me. And then the third step is to substitute more affirmative language and to start to talk to ourselves in friendlier ways to really, I mean, I mean really with a super underline advocate for ourselves and advocate for our work and be friendly towards our work and be a supporter of our work to really be more friendly than we typically are. You have an artist plan, your appendix number one here, uh, appendix, excuse me. And um, so there is, they say, you know, you can either, uh, those who uh, fail to plan, plan to fail. Uh, and artists don't like to be boxed in by those rules. But how critical is that to even getting the opportunity to be successful? It is It is really important. And I understand that young artists maybe have to stand behind the idea that planning is boring. That may be one of those <laughs> developmental phases that we have to go through. I think we all went through. I, I don't want to suit I don't I don't want to own a suit. I don't want to, I don't want to schedule. I don't want this. I don't want that. Okay. Well, we understand that 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 youthful exuberance for freedom um may not help you at a certain point. You get through your 20s and you know, you don't have a car that runs and you can't pay the rent and etc. There comes a time where we really have to knuckle down and plan better. And another piece of that is so much goes on in our lives nowadays and I'm not sure anybody can hold all the moving parts of their life in their head. I think we have to move some of that stuff out onto, you know, whiteboards or whatever we use, whatever we're using as organizational tools or crutches. We need them. We need them because life is complicated and there there are lots of moving parts to life. So, as I say, maybe it's romantically fun enough to not plan early on in life, but a point comes where we see that that's not really serving us and we need schedules and calendars and to-do lists and all the boring stuff that actually make a difference. And, you know, we only have a few minutes left. Tell us a little about how people can get engaged, the creative 
or anyone else who's wanting to have that self-expression and want some support involved with uh, some of your coaches and what that looks like because uh, now we can do it via Skype or whatever and it could be in fact I prefer to coach on the phone uh, than one That's exactly true. I, I no longer maintain an office. I do all of my coaching on the phone or via Skype with um, email contact in between. That's my model and that's actually the model that I, I try to sell to the coaches I train that it, it, it's, it's a little um, unnecessary to maintain an office nowadays and the phone is tremendously intimate. Plus, I have clients all over the world. There's no way, there's no way an office would really work for me anymore. Uh, certainly, the San Francisco Bay Area where I live is rich in artists, and I could maintain a practice just locally. But it's so it's so much better for me and richer for me and better for prospective clients that I can um, talk to them uh, via Skype or the phone. Also, in my model, I, this is not the therapy model. I'm not on the 50-minute hour once a week. I'm on the half-hour once a month model because I want folks to get work done. I don't want to be talking about things. I don't want to speak every week about um, some ongoing issue. I want you to be doing the work for this whole month, and then we'll check in again. Now, obviously, things come up during the month that require conversation, and we do that via email. But I like to set up the model that you get this huge chunk of time a month to accomplish the things that we set up in our sessions. And 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 also that's also an accounting because it, it's not well. I'll just talk to my coach this week about it. It's, that's exactly right. And of course, there's, not, that's, there's, there's nothing wrong with somebody. Nothing wrong with somebody using the other weekly model. Just for no. me, um, I, I want people to get a lot of work done. Well, you know, I'm, I guess that is more about the um, that you actually do have the answers within you much of the time, and the coach draws those answers out for you, your truth or what's what's really so about something, and then it can help to take responsibility for whatever quagmire you find yourself in. That's right, and, and we set up we set up very clear goals for the month and. Uh, you know they're they're so clear that uh, they almost have to be uh, they almost have to be followed because of their clarity. <laughs> I'll bet, Dr. Eric Mizell, my guest this evening here on Positively Incorrect, his new book, Making Your Creative Mark: Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals. Go to Eric Mizell, M-A-I-S-E-L, EricMizell dot com. Find out more. The new book from New World Library. Eric, another wonderful work to help support us all in moving forward in our creative expression in life. A pleasure to have you on again, Eric. It's always such a joy. Thanks so much, Scott. Let's let's do it a million more times. Right on. Let's plan on being around that long. Mm-hmm. Right. Take care. Have a great evening at the Bay. Thank you. All right, and thanks to our listeners out there. Always stay tuned for more Positively Thanks for joining me in the Love Cafe community. Don't forget, join us on Facebook at Scott Cluthy's Love Cafe and sign up for the newsletter. Till next time, this is Scott Cluthy. Thanks again for stopping by the Love Cafe.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.